for about, uh, I guess it's 18 years now, I've been telling my story about the Father's love ever since I got touched by the Father's love in the first way I could identify it. And it met a deep need in my life and continues to meet that need. And I believe that we all have a need to know the love of God our Father. And I have a quote in our syllabus that sort of encapsulates this by the novelist Thomas Wolfe. And he says, the deepest search in life, it seemed to me, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living was man's search to find a father. Not merely the father of his flesh, nor merely the lost father of his youth, but the image of a strength and wisdom external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. All of us are searching to find the love of a father, and we want to be united with a father, and we want to give our life entirely to that relationship. And so tonight we want to talk about the revelation of the Father's love, this love that we're all looking for at a very deep level. And I'd like to share with you sort of my story, because I realize now more than ever that I have this deep need to experience the love of a father and to experience the love of God, my father. And I began that search before I knew I was searching for it, when I was a little boy. And I believe that all of us are built to look for the love of a father, first of all, with our natural fathers. And so there was something in me that wanted to know that my, my father loved me, my dad. I believe there was something in me that wanted my dad to come to me and say, Eddie, you are my son, and I love you for who you are, not so much for what you do. And so when I was little, I think I was looking for that love from my father. But I never received it. My dad came from a generation of men that really didn't know how to express love like that. And the result was is that he never took me into his arms and hugged me, and he never looked me in the eyes and said, Eddie, I love you. But I wanted that. And by the time I uh, got old enough to get in touch with that, probably, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, I began to realize what could I do in order to get my father to love me like that. And I think that as kids, we all try to figure that out. What do we need to do to get our dads to come and love us? And we just respond to it in different ways. But I realized that my dad seemed to be more pleased with me whenever I excelled in whatever I did. If I would get good grades, you know, A's uh, instead of B's and C's, he seemed to be proud of me and, uh, you know, he would reward me. And this came out in the most graphic way when I was playing sports as a young boy. My dad wanted me to become a professional baseball player. And so he was my coach and my train, trainer all my early years, and he wanted me to become a great pitcher. And I can remember how things went in my you know, young baseball career and how it reflected on my relationship with my father. If uh, I pitched a, you know, a moderate game, it was sort of neutral, 
I pitched a great game, even hit a, you know, pitched a no-hitter, then my dad would take me out and reward me with something. A steak dinner, something like that. Ice cream. That's why I'm so thin today. I should write a book on what I would call the no-hitter diet. But I did throw one or two, so that kept me motivated, because I would get a real reward from my dad if I could do that. But if I lost a really important game and failed in my performance, my dad used to get upset with me. And I can remember when we lost a really important game, and my dad was sort of yelling at me, you know, as I was out there all alone on the mound, quite upset. He brought me home, and we went to our little, you know, dirt lot next to our house, and it was time to practice to get it right. You know, and he'd put his catcher's glove over, you know, home plate, and he'd say, son, throw strikes. And I'd wind up and throw the best pitch I could, and uh, eventually I'd throw a strike. And the moment I hit the center of that glove, he would say, there it is. If you can hit the glove, then you can be a success in life. And so when I came out of my childhood, I can see the way the core of my being was constructed. Deep down within, I had a, what I would call a core loneliness of never experiencing intimacy with my father of experiencing his affectionate love. I had an emptiness. I also had some pain of rejection that still hurt. And from that emanated a fear of failing and being hurt again. And when I went into life like that, I tried to fill that void with everything you do in Southern California in order to you know, make yourself feel good about yourself. And I was always trying to perform for other people's approval, doing the most radical things. The problem is, by the time I was 22 years old, I had burned my life out. I guess you could have called me a borderline alcoholic, and I had some serious physical problems going on. Well, about that time, there was a catalytic event that would begin to change things. My mother, who was only 45, was diagnosed with cancer, went into the hospital, and she passed away within two weeks. On the day that she was buried, something happened inside of me. I believe that I had a little boy inside who knew that he had one source of affection in this life, and it was my mom. And when she passed away, that little boy gave up all hope. And I had this great spiral into the darkness of despair. And I remember the night you know, uh, that she was buried. My wife and I were in my bedroom, and I went into this despair, and I was considering taking my own life. And at that moment, my wife realized that there was some kind of, you know, serious problem taking place. I was there shaking and really violently sick in bed. And she prayed a little simple prayer, God, if you're there, please help us. Now, I didn't hear it, but she prayed it. And when she prayed that prayer, this presence came into our bedroom, a supernatural presence that you could feel, and touched me, and instantly all the symptoms were gone. Everything was gone, and I was in complete peace, and I fell asleep. In the morning, we woke up, we looked at each other, because the same thing had happened to her, and we said to each other simultaneously, I think I met God last night. And we were just amazed at what had happened. And they said, well, we, so we looked at each other, and said, well, we met God. What do we do? And we realized it was Sunday morning, and then, we said, we should go to church. 
so we went to church and we sat in the front row and uh, in this Presbyterian church in these wooden pews we didn't even know why we were there but we had just met God and the uh, choir began to sing these hymns and the first time they came to the word Jesus all of a sudden we realized that we had just met Jesus last night we were advancing in our theology and then when the uh, pastor got up, he started to teach, you know, out of the Bible. And the moment he started talking about Jesus, one of the Gospels, I wanted to stand up and say, this Jesus that you're talking about came into my room last night, and I met him. And I was so thrilled. I can remember I was sitting there shaking and crying and everything and the reality of this in the front row of the Presbyterian Church. My wife and I, radically met Jesus we got quite radically saved and so we just gave our life to Jesus and we asked the people in the church well what should we do now and they said well you're young you're the youngest people in the church <laughs> by about 20 years we were fresh material junior high and we were uh, brought into the junior high ministry about three months after we got saved. And it was wonderful. And we began to serve Jesus with great zeal. And uh, as a result of that, you know, we had tremendous opportunities to minister and advance in the ministry. And it was, in the matter of 10 years, I was a senior pastor of a, a pretty successful church, wearing a three-piece suit, and I had my own pulpit, much bigger than this one. And, and at that time, I was, I was putting in about 70 to 80 hours a week, you know, just working as hard as I could for Jesus. And it was wonderful, yet awful. And when I look back on it, I realized that here was my problem. I still had this core issue that hadn't been touched yet. I had met Jesus, but I hadn't really been introduced to the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a very conservative church. And I had not met the person of the Father. And I had felt pretty much that I was serving Jesus, and I, I was pretty much doing it in my own strength. Uh, but in the back of my mind, believing that God was like my Father, and if I didn't hit the glove, somehow I'd fail in his sight and be rejected. As a result of 10 years of uh, ministry, sort of with this kind of uh, performance orientation, even though things were very outwardly successful, I burned out. All of a sudden, it, uh, I, I didn't have the strength to do what I felt that we had the opportunity to do. And God intervened in our life again at that m moment of burnout by helping us to come into relationship with a man by the name of John Wimber. And, and most of you probably know of John Wimber. He's the one who founded the Vineyard Movement. And I went to a, a seminar on, uh, you know, how to grow your church. And because even though I was in burnout, all I could think about was getting a bigger church. Then I'd be okay. So I went and I listened to John Wimber, and I, I, I can't remember much of what he said, except that he made this statement that sometimes burned-out pastors would come to him, and he would lay hands on them, 
And when he laid hands on them, they received the power of the Holy Spirit and be revived. And I said, that's what I need. So I, it took me about two or three months, but I finally got an appointment with John Wimber. And he ended up laying hands on me and on Janet and filling us with the Holy Spirit. And we received the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, uh, we, we had this whole new paradigm for the Holy Spirit. And now we began to move in the things of the kingdom of God. And it was wonderful. We learned how to pray for the sick, cast out demons, you know, do all these supernatural things. And, and a lot of things happened. And we became, became part of the vineyard movement. Now, when I look back on it, when I take a look at my framework, then I, I knew Jesus, the person of Christ. I, I, I had a much closer relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit now. But I still hadn't met the Father, and I believed he was still like my dad. So instead of trying to preach perfect sermons, I wanted to make sure that I never failed in doing the stuff. So when it came to praying for the sick, I would pray for, you know, I read more books than anybody, and I, and I had anybody who was anybody lay hands on me for anointing. And when it came to praying for people, I would stay with them as long as it was necessary because I had to win. You know, if it was deliverance, I would sometimes stay up all night, but we would get that demon out because I started to have to win. Because I, something inside of me says, I don't, I don't want to fail at this. And it was wonderful in the things that were happening, but it was yet it was sort of awful inside because I still felt so driven. Well, hanging around with John Wimber was going to help me on my road to, the, to find God the Father. First of all, John Wimber was very fatherly. And he had the spirit of the father on him. And just being around him, he was the dad I never had. And he was so loving to me and so kind to me. Always loving me. And I was starting to feel that at a psychological, relational level. It was helping me on my way to realize God was like that. And so John would take me on these trips and I can remember how it happened over and over again. But we would be in an auditorium, and there might be, you know, 500 people, 1,000 people. Sometimes it was 5,000 people. And John would get up and preach on healing the sick. And he'd give an incredible message on Je how Jesus healed the sick and then how the disciples healed the sick. And, and I would say, what a wonderful message. Nobody can preach it like you, John. And I'd be sitting there in the front row listening to him. And then he'd say, well, but we're not here just to talk about it. We're also going to do the stuff. We're also going to, we're going to pray for someone that they get healed. So let's all be quiet, and I'm going to wait and see if the Lord gives me a word of knowledge, and then we'll have someone come up. Now, I like that because that's very risky. You know, when you're with all those people, and you're going to be, you're going to be quiet, and you're going to see if God's going to speak to you about someone in the room. That's just very risky. I love that about John and it was very safe when I was in the front row and he was up there doing that and then so he'd get a word and there'd be some person to respond to they come up on the stage and uh, sometimes these situations are what I would call hard ones as if not all healing was hard but they would be people you know that were blind sometimes people couldn't hear people had some deformity you could see and he'd get them up on stage and he says now now we're gonna pray for this person to be healed 
And I'd say, this is, this is so great. And he'd say, but just wait a minute. If I prayed for this person and they were healed, you'd all believe it's just because, you know, I'm the great man of anointing. But we're here, I, I'm here to help you realize that anybody can do it. We're all supposed to do this stuff. In order to show you that, Eddie, would you come up and pray for him? And he would do that to me. That was the way he discipled people, you know. So I'd, he'd call me up to pray for this hard situation. And the moment he called my name, it was wonderful and awful. The wonderful side of it was having him acknowledge me and the good side of it to pray for this person and that. But the awful side was immediately I'd get this knot in my stomach because I was so afraid I might fail in front of all these people and be rejected by John and everybody else. And it would, just, it would paralyze me, but I'd get up and I'd go up to pray for the person out of sheer obedience. And so I'd get up there to put my hand out towards the person. And it, is, it happened so many times. I'd put my hand out there and I'd say, Father, you know, try and pray my best prayer. And the Spirit would fall on the person and heal them right there before I even prayed. You know, then and the person would say, I'm healed. And, and I would go, cool, you know, like, you know, like I really know what I'm doing. And I'm, and I'm really together about this. And, but inside it is go, whoosh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for doing that. Well, as a result of that, I began to realize that I had a problem I had to deal with. Because it was getting more and more painful as time went on. So I began to read books about this core insecurity, this core fear, you know, Christian psychology books, and they were very helpful. And it helped me realize that I, have a deep, I had a deep insecurity, and it probably would stem from my relationship with my father. And then as I read, some people would say, and you need to know God, your father, better. So I began to study the Bible about God the Father, and I realized that it said that, you know, the Father loved the Son, Jesus, that the Father loved us if we loved Jesus. So I began to give myself self-talk. When I would be in those situations, I would simply say, when I started feeling afraid, Father, you love me. The Bible tells me so. And it sort of worked. But it was just sort of keeping a lid on my fear. But I was on the right track. I was looking to experience the love of God, my, my Father. That's what I needed. And so finally, another conference with John. You know, several thousand people there. And uh, it's Friday night. You know, and the first part had gone great, and there would be a conference the whole day Saturday. And so after this wonderful meeting, we go up into John's uh, hotel room. Now, it's just John and I, and we ordered cheeseburgers. And, I, and I'm sitting there eating this cheeseburger saying, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, this is so cool. John has just been this wonderful meeting, successful, and here I am. Just John and I having a cheeseburger, it's so wonderful. And then he looked at me and said, Eddie, I just got a phone call, and there's a problem back at the church in California, and I have to leave, you know, at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you're going to have to take over the whole conference yourself. You're going to have to do all the teaching, all the ministry tomorrow. And I'll tell you, I just put that cheeseburger down. I couldn't eat another bite. You know, I started to feel that anxiety coming up. 
and I had a hard time sleeping that night. And in the morning, I went for a long run, and I got three or four miles out and realized I eventually had to come back. Seriously. So I come back, and I'm still pretty nervous because now it's about an hour and a half from the meeting. So I, I see this jacuzzi over there, so I go, say, ah, turn the bubbles on, relax, maybe that'll help. So I'm in there relaxing, and I'm sort of dialing down. And I looked up into this blue sky, and I saw this jet vapor trail going from east to west, and I looked at my watch, and it was 8 o'clock. And I realized that John Wimber was on that plane. And the moment I realized that he was really gone, and I was really alone, with a tremendous potential to fail in my life. That core just came right to the surface, and I had a paralyzing knot in my stomach right there in that jacuzzi. And I did it again. I said, Father, the Bible says you love me, and I need your love right now. And I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit come. I was a good vineyard guy, and I... I had my hands up there, and I could feel the presence. I could feel the electricity. And it began to touch me on my forehead and touch me on my, my hands. And, and I was embracing it, and all of a sudden it got stronger, and it turned to what I would describe as like liquid, warm love. Just this warm love. And it rushed right through my body down to the knot in my stomach, and I burst out into tears. And I just start crying and crying. And then all of a sudden, it's like the heavens are open. And I hear these words. Eddie. And only my close friends would call me Eddie. But God, my father, said to me, Eddie, I love you. And you can never fail in my sight. And when I felt that and when I heard that, it touched something so deep in me. And I just began to cry from the deepest part of me. That loneliness and that rejection and that fear just cried it out over and over and over again. And I felt this love flowing into me. And I can remember when it was done, I just laughed and laughed for like 20 minutes uncontrollably. And, you know, when I went into every meeting from that point on, things were different. And actually, that what happened to me be, became my ministry of helping other people to come into an experience of the Father's love. That's what we're all looking for. And, and the Father is looking for us. In the course of our Christian life, he sets up all these circumstances, and, and so often they're designed by him to push up the very core of our lives, to bring us to a place where we realize our deepest search is for a Father's love. And when we come to that moment, he meets us there, and he touches us as no one else can touch us. And in one way or another, he tells us that he loves us. And once we come to know that, then we begin to grow in it. 
and live in it in the totality of our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's my story. Amen and hallelujah for that. Let's uh, open up into our syllabus. And once again, the subject for tonight is the revelation of the Father's love. And I shared with you what I would call my story. And I think that all of us are have a story. Uh, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it. All of us need to see our lives as a story with God. And all of us have a story that is growing with the Father. So I've shared my story in hopes that it can become your story, that you will have a story of experiencing the Father's love. But I realize that my story can only become your story if we can find it in his story, in the story of the Bible, in the story of the life of Jesus. And that's why if we, like uh, Mike said earlier, it's we, we want to have our testimony, uh, we want to have our story, but we also want to understand the theology behind it, uh, you know, the biblical foundations for our experience. Because if we can see it in his story, if we can see it in the scripture, in the Bible, the experience of the Father's love, then we know it's transferable. It's not just my unique story, even though there's facets of it that are unique, but the, the, the generic experience is potential for all of us if we can see it in the scripture. And so tonight we want to look at the, you know, the foundations of the revelation of the Father's love, the, the biblical foundations for this experience. And as we look at the scripture, I think it helps us because wherever you're at in your journey, you can see that you can, you can move right through what the Bible says and move to a place where you can put yourself in a position of experiencing it because you're just lining yourself with the word. Now, we begin with what I would call a paradigm for the Father's love. A paradigm is, is like a mindset. It's the way we perceive things to be. And in our Christianity, we need to have a paradigm uh, to understand Jesus Christ properly, a paradigm for the Holy Spirit properly, and a paradigm that includes the Father in our Christian life, and one that sees him as a loving Father. In John 17, 24, we learn this, that Jesus is the eternal Son, loved by the Father before the foundation of time. And to me, this is sort of an important thing to realize that before creation, God existed. And he existed in a triune relationship. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, loving each other before creation. So the most essential thing about the nature of the Godhead is love. And then as we move into creation, then we see power of the creative act manifested. But what is prior to that is the love relationship. There is a love relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, conducted by the person of the Holy Spirit. 
We are saved to be brought into that relationship. When this created order is over, and there's a new order, it will be, we will be brought into the fullness of that loving relationship. See, love is the beginning and the end. And this thing of coming into the experience of the love of the Father is coming into that fellowship. And so this makes sense when we, we think of John 3.16. For God, referring to the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God the Father loved us and sent his Son to die for us that we might be forgiven and saved so that we can be brought back to him and into that loving relationship. And the Bible tells us that no man can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. The Father reveals the Son so that we can be saved. But once the Son comes into our life, Jesus Christ comes into our life, he wants to reveal the Father to us so that we can become sons and daughters. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus teaches us about his desire to reveal the Father to us. Verse 22, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the F Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus wants to reveal the Father to us. That is part of his ministry. And he wants to show us the Father. And so Jesus wants to reveal the Father to you and I so that we can come into experiencing his love. And so when Jesus came in, in his ministry in to show us the Father, the first thing he did, he showed us who is God his Father. He came to make God known as Father. In the Old Testament, there are just a few references to God as Father, and only a handful of references talking about his fatherly love. And in the Old Testament, primarily you see the God of creation, the God of holiness, the God of power, the God of righteousness, and he is all those things. But there are not too many re references to him as God as Father. But when Jesus comes, and we're told in John 1.18, he comes to reveal the Father. And when you read like the Gospel of John, he refers constantly to God as Father. Because he is just trying to make God known as Father to the Jewish people. He wants us all to know that God is not only creator and powerful and holy, but he is ultimately Father. And then Jesus in showing us that God is Father went one step further. Jesus always referred to God as Abba. The scholar Jeremiah believes that whenever Jesus used the word Father in, and was praying in the Aramaic, he would use the term Abba. And if you've seen the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which is in, in original languages, if you notice listening to the language, Every time it's a father scripture, Jesus prays Abba. And when Jesus called the God of the Old Testament Father and Abba, that was revolutionary. 
Because that term, Abba, was the term that Jewish children would use for their daddy when they were very little. That was never used by the Jewish leaders. It was not part of Judaism at that time. And he would come and he'd say, God is Father, he is Abba. And even then he was trying to reveal the intimate, loving nature of, of Almighty God as Dad. See, he came to make God known as Father. And also, he came to show us what he is like as a Father. Because he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen what the Father is like. And when we take a look at Jesus in his ministry to people who are in need, we see the nature of God the Father for the broken, for the poor, for the hurting. And he always treats them with love, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, tenderness, kindness, always. Until the, and to the older brothers, the Pharisees, even in the beginning, he just tries to shake them into awareness. And then when they reject that, then he must tell them about the judgment that they're in danger of. But to those who will respond, he comes and shows that God is a father who is loving and kind and merciful to all those who want to know him as a child. One of the interesting things about the revelation that Jesus brings about the Father is not only who he is and what he's like, but what it looks like to be loved as a son. Jesus came to show us what it looks like to be loved by our Father in heaven. As we'll see, Jesus came as the God-man, and in his humanity, he has experiences with God as Father, and that shows us exactly what it's like to be loved by our Father. Jesus is the prototype. And as we look at his life, we will see that he experiences the love of his Father, and he's revealing that to us. The way the Father loved me is the way the Father will love you. And that brings us to our second point, the way that the Father loved Jesus. And I want to talk about the phileo love in the life of Jesus. Phileo is a transliteration of the Greek word for love that could be best described as demonstrated natural affection. And we're introduced to this, this term, phileo love, in John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, we can turn there together. <clears throat> Jesus had just performed a miracle, healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. And he got in hot water with the religious leaders because he did it on what day? The Sabbath. And then we see the text in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus, once again, God is my father, and he's working on the Sabbath, and I'm working on the Sabbath too. 
And it begins to tell us about that intimate relationship that Jesus had with the Father. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. And in the King James, that's one of those verily, verily verses. Truly, truly. In other words, listen, listen. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, this verse happens to be one of the platform verses of the early vineyard. If there's one thing John told us is that you can only do what the father's doing. How many of you have ever heard that before? That Jesus said that. And he knew that he could only do what the Father was doing. And I believe that there are two aspects of that. One, in his divine relationship with the Father, he, he had to walk in total obedience. He, he wanted to be obedient, so he could only do what his Father was telling him. But I believe it also speaks about his human side. He is the God-man. And the human side, in the mystery of the Incarnation, the human side of Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. And John taught us that too. That Jesus was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he had to walk under the anointing of the Spirit. In other words, he had to be in alignment with the Father to be fully anointed with the Spirit to get, to get the job done. And that's where you and I begin to sort of line up with that. That's what John taught us. We need to be in line with the Father's will so that we will walk under the anointing to be able to do what he's doing. But see, it brings out an aspect of the humanity of Jesus. And that helps us because we move to understanding how the Father loves us in our humanity. We have to see the kind of relationship that the God-man had with the Father. He said he could only do what the Father He was dependent. And all of a sudden, that begins to put in my mind this question of, did Jesus ever have an anxious moment when he had to face those hard things? And he had to Father, you're going to have to show me how to do this one. What was his assurance that the Father would always tell him, show him how to do it? Where did he get his assurance? Not to, not to get ahead of the Father and not to like back of the Father. What kept him centered? What awareness? What keeps us centered? And this is in verse 20. In this context, for the Father loves the Son. This was his assurance. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. And the Greek word for loves there is phileo. The, for the Father has a phileo love for the Son. And that's that love is the love that reassured Jesus' heart. And he knew that the Father would always show him what he was doing. And so this word we see here in the life of Jesus with his Father. His Father had a phileo love for him. As I said before, phileo is best demonstrated as demonstrated natural affection. According to Vine's dictionary, it says phileo is to be distinguished from agapeo in this, that phileo more nearly represents tender affection. So often the word 
agape has to do with God's, what I would call, far-off transactions of love for man. Romans 5.8. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Excuse me. God commended his love towards us, or demonstrated his love to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father, who is far off in heaven, loved us while we were yet sinners. And he sent Jesus Christ to die for us so that we might be saved. And so many times agapeo is used. It talks about God making a decision, the Father making a loving decision for us that's sort of far off. And he, and he sent it through Jesus to come to us. But this word phileo is a word that describes his up-close love. Not only did God love us from far away and send Jesus to die for us and send us the Holy Spirit and all of these things, but the Father also has a love for us that's, that comes close to us and touches us. It's a demonstrated natural affection that we can feel, and it's, it's rooted in that thing between a, a father and, and his children and, and good friends where they actually can hug and feel. That's this, what this word is. And that was the kind of love that Jesus experienced with the Father, a phileo love, as well as agapeo. And I believe that with that as a mindset, when we take a look at the life of Jesus, there are times where we can see him experience love. And probably the best example is when he was baptized. And a good account of this is in Mark chapter 1. And as I read this, see if you can sort of see the phileo love in it. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. And I believe this is not a metaphor. I believe this was a true event. It's the same word that was used when the... the the veil in the temple was rent, that he saw heaven being torn open as he was standing there coming out of the baptismal waters. He sees heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You can see the, and feel the phileo love in what happened to Jesus when he was baptized. And just for, for a moment, let's zero in on this, reminding ourselves, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who in the incarnation became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He is the unique God-man, both fully divine and fully human. And that's what the Bible tells us. So when he was standing there, he's, he's, he still has the fullness of deity, but he is fully human at that moment that he's baptized. And I believe that as he stands there, he stands there in the weakness of his humanity as he contemplates the three years of ministry the successes, and the downside, knowing that there will be betrayal, rejection, pain, and ultimately death on the cross. And there he is in his humanity, facing that ministry. And he's in touch with the fact that in his humanity, he is, 
He carries human weakness without sin. A body that could be get tired, a body that could feel pain. He has a heart that can be hurt, a heart that can feel grief, a heart that can feel joy, a heart that can feel anxiety, just like us, yet without sin. And he's standing there in his humanity looking at what's ahead, and I believe at that point he needs reassurance from his father. Most commentators believe that. So he prays. Luke tells us he prays in that place of weakness, vulnerability. And the answer to the prayer that he prays is what we see. The heavens are opened. The Spirit comes in a tangible way and manifests and rests on him. And I believe he could feel that. These were told in the book of Acts that he was anointed with all the power in order to set all those oppressed from the devil free. He was anointed with power. The Spirit came on him, and he could feel it. And then all of a sudden, he hears these words. And I like Henry Nowen says, he hears these incredible words from his Father in heaven. You are my son. I love you. I am well pleased with you, and you haven't done anything yet. Phileo love in his moment of need. You know, I, every time I read this verse, I'd say, here is Jesus, the moment of the beginning of his ministry, needing the affirmation of God his Father. There's God the Father up in heaven at this such critical event in the life of Jesus. What could he possibly say to give his son the affirmation he needs? You know, and he, God's real wise. You know, and he, I sometimes think, well, maybe he could have quoted, you know, a whole portion of Isaiah over him, you know, the great prophetic things, all these great truths, Davidic promises, all of this stuff over him, and all of it would have been true. But he's only got a moment at this critical, vulnerable moment in his son's life, and he's going to say, what can I say that will will send him off in the best possible way. At the very beginning of his ministry, what is the most powerful, meaningful thing I could say to him? And it's, I love you. Those incredible words. That's everything at the core of phileo love. And I believe that the Spirit embraced him. He could feel it. And those words touched his heart. And he felt the love of God his Father. I like the way Brendan Manning puts it. I believe that at some point in his human journey, Jesus was seized by the power of a great affection, a great phileo love, and experienced the love of his Father in a way that burst all previous boundaries of understanding. Then it happens, whatever the external manifestations were, the baptism of Jesus Christ in the River Jordan was an awesome personal event. Then he goes on to say, what an earthquake in the human soul of Jesus. What a powerful statement. You see, we're here to, to understand, to talk about the revelation of the Father's love. We want it revealed to us. And we want it revealed to us through the Word of God. And the Word of God reveals to us, this is what happened to Jesus. And Jesus is our the great prototype for our lives. What does it mean to be a Christian? 
It's to, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to become like him. And in order to become like him, we also need to enter into this relationship that he offers us with the Father. And as one man said, what he experienced as son by nature, we get to experience as sons and daughters by adoption. But what we experience by adoption, we have to see what happened to him. And I tell you, this is one of the central images in my life right now. In my life is I'm constantly putting myself in that place where I'm standing with Jesus, full faith in Jesus Christ, sold out to Jesus, standing with him, lifting my hands up that the Spirit of God would come and empower me every moment of my life. I learned that from John Wimber. And that in that moment, standing with Jesus, the Spirit coming from heaven, that my Father's love will come and touch me and tell me again in some way or another, I love you. And that, that what happens to Jesus in the very beginning shows us what our ongoing experience is to be. And it shows us this is what the Father's love looks like. And you know, that's what makes the next point so wonderful. The promise of the Father's love to his disciples. Jesus promises that the love that he received, those who follow him, can receive also. And let's turn uh, back to John, John 16. And John 16 is part of the upper room discourse. And, you know, that's like when Jesus got all the disciples together in the hotel room, and they were all having a cheeseburger together. And he made the gr great announcement that he is leaving tomorrow, and the ministry is in your hands. It's exactly similar parallel, much more of greater magnitude with Jesus, of course, but it's the same thing for them. Here they are, they've been following Jesus, doing the stuff, and they're in the upper room, and he announces to them, tomorrow I'm leaving you. He announces his death, and he tells them that the, the Spirit will come. And when the Spirit comes, that they're going to do the work that he did and greater works. And I believe that when they got that announcement that Jesus is leaving, they're going to be all alone and that they're going to have to do what he did all by themselves. They got anxious about it. Those guys probably had a big knot in their stomach because they were pretty insecure. We all know that, right? They were all very insecure at the core. So when they realized what was coming to them, they probably had what I would call a holy huddle, you know, Peter as quarterback. What are we going to do? And what, how are we going to do those things Jesus did? And so they said, well, how did he do them? We want to remember. Then they realized that when it came to praying for people, Jesus hardly ever did it the same way twice. You know, just take praying for blind people. It's almost a different way every time. It's hard to write a manual on how to do everything the same way every time. And they said, he, he was always doing it differently. And they said, well, how did he do that? And they said, ah, oh, they remembered. He spent time with his father. And his father always showed him what he was doing. 
So their question is, and it makes perfect logic, logical sense, is when you leave, will the Father show us what he's doing? Good question. That was the question John Wimber left with us. We always want to know what the Father's doing. That has not changed for us. We still can do nothing by ourselves. We still need to know what the Father's doing. And that's what's so wonderful is that the Father is revealing himself to us so we can do it. But that was their question. And to me, it's good logic. They wanted to know. And in that context, we understand this verse much better. Jesus answered to them in verse 16. I mean, chapter 16, verse 26. He says, in that day, when he go, and he's gone, in that day you will ask in my name, in other words, you will ask the Father in the name of Jesus. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And that verse has tremendous, interesting theological implications. In other words, it's not like we just ask Jesus and stop there. As if he's going to then go ask the Father. No, he's saying that the, you're going to be able to ask the Father yourself. In other words, you're going to have... You're going to know me, but you're also going to have a relationship with the Father yourself. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you, phileo, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus gives them the assurance that if they believe in him, that the Father has phileo love for them also that the Father will demonstrate his natural affection to them just like he did to Jesus. And that is the great promise that we, we read in John 16, is that if we love Jesus, if we stand alongside Jesus, then the Father will love us with a phileo love. He will come and demonstrate his natural affection to us. So you see, if you're here, and you believe in Jesus Christ, this promise is for you. The Father loves you. And he has a phileo love for you. He has a love where he wants to demonstrate in a way that you can experience his natural fatherly affection. Affection is such a wonderful word, you know. You know, that you can actually feel his, his emotional love for you. You can have your emotions moved by that. And that is the promise. I like what Henry Nouwen says also. Jesus is the blessed one. He was blessed by his father when he was baptized. This was the blessing that sustained Jesus during his life. And Jesus came into the world to share that blessing with us. So we have the promise that if we love Jesus, the father has a phileo love for us also. And this was the promise that he gave them. And just after he gave them the promise that the Father is going to demonstrate his love to you also, he wanted to make sure it happened. So he prays for it. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, we see that Jesus has a prayer for the revelation of the Father's love in the life of all disciples. And at the very end of the prayer, verse 25, 
we read, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know, referring to his disciples, that you have sent me. In other words, they believe in me. They're Christians. So he's speaking about us too. Verse 26. I have made you known to them. In other words, when Jesus was there on earth, he made the Father known to them and will continue to make you known beyond his earthly incarnation and will continue to make you known Father in order that, or with a certain end in sight, that the love you have for me, in other words, the love I experience from you, may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. See, Jesus prayed that the love that the Father had for him would be in us. And that there would be a continual revelation of that love to all disciples even after his incarnation. And that revelation, in order for it to be experiential, that they could experience that love, the Holy Spirit would have to come. So when the Holy Spirit comes, the experience of that love continues. And Jesus continues to pray for us that we would come to know the Father's love. And the love of the Father continues to be revealed to the church. And the Spirit continues to come to bring us into that experience. So Jesus prayed for it. When was his prayer answered for the first time for disciples? I believe that it was answered on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the prayers of Jesus are answered for his disciples. And we're familiar with this. On Pentecost, there's an outpouring of the Spirit with power, Acts 1.8. That was the promise, you know, wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit will come and give you the power to be my disciples. And most of us are familiar with that. That we believe that the Holy Spirit came on the early church and empowered them to be supernatural people as a witness for Jesus Christ. Power and gifts were released on the day of Pentecost. But on Pentecost, there's also an outpouring of the Father's love in the midst of the outpouring of power, in the midst of the outpouring of gifts. There is an outpouring of God's love. And I believe Paul speaks about that in the book of Romans. And in his first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, he makes this statement. Verse 5. And hope does not disappoint us because God, in reference to the Father, has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. James Dunn, in his commentary on Romans, says, Paul uses vivid Pentecostal language poured out in our hearts and obviously recalls his readers to deep emotional experiences which must have been common to many of those who became Christians at that time. In other words, Paul talks about 
the day that the Holy Spirit was given in reference to the day of Pentecost. And there he uses language that was reserved just for Pentecost, poured out. That language was referring to the day of Pentecost because on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, they said, what's happening? And Peter said, this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. So that language became unique language for the day of Pentecost in the early church, the day the Spirit was poured out. But Paul sees not only was the Spirit poured out, but the love of God the Father was poured out on that day when the Spirit was given. And it was a love that was poured out in our hearts. And as James Dunn said, recalling the readers to vivid emotional experiences. See, they experienced God's love when the Spirit came. They experienced phileo love being poured out in their hearts on the day of Pentecost. And so the point is, is that when the Spirit was poured out in power, the Father also poured out his love in their hearts because Pentecost is a replication of the baptism of Jesus. At the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he is anointed with power when the Spirit comes on him, and the love of God the Father is poured out in his heart. Then when the church begins their ministry, and here are these men that have big knots in their stomach, representing all of us that have our deep anxieties and needs. And what do they need? They're in that upper room praying just like Jesus prayed at the, at the River Jordan. They're praying, and they get the same answer. The heavens are open. This time, the, the, you know, the, the mighty wind takes the roof off the place, and the tongues of fire come upon them, and the Spirit gives them power as he rests upon them. But God's love, his I love you, is poured out in their hearts. Now, see, that's important for us to realize that the promise and prayer are fulfilled when the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And from that point on, from the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is, is continually being poured out in the church. But part of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for us to see the Father's love in it, that the Father's love is being poured out in the church as the Spirit's being poured out. And, you know, it took for me a while to see that. You know, I had lots of powerful experiences in the Holy Spirit. You know, like Michael was saying, I spent a lot of floor time. Had a lot of manifestations happen at different times. And there were times where I would cry my eyes out. Sometimes laugh. But I never saw the love in it. I didn't, I didn't realize the love of God the Father was, was touching me, causing me to cry and laugh. And, the, and the, the result was my heart was never secured. Through all that stuff, I still was an insecure person, not knowing love, until I saw the face of the Father in the outpouring of the Spirit. And I tell you, that's wonderful news for us, because how many of you have ever felt the Holy Spirit touch you? Almost everyone in this room. I want to let you know, every one of you at that same moment were feeling the Father's love, but you may not have had language for it. You, you, you just didn't see the face of the Father in it. And the moment you see it, then all of a sudden you embrace it, and every time the Spirit comes, I can't separate it now. Like James Dunn says, 
Paul didn't see a distinction between the two. He couldn't distinguish between love and power. And when you think about it relationally, in God, you really can't. God is personal. He is fatherly. When he comes and, and you feel the power of anointing, he, the person of the Father is in there with his love. And this is so helpful to me because some people say, well, I, I, I just don't, can't get in touch with the Father's love, but I, I, can, I can feel the Spirit. This just helps you make the connection because once you make the connection, then you start experiencing the Father's love to some degree, again and again and again. And so all of a sudden, when you feel the, the presence in worship, you feel the presence when you pray, when you feel the presence in your bedroom, the presence of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden you say, Father, you're touching me with your love. It's your filial love. Then all of a sudden, something deep within you connects with that, begins to move your emotions, and you begin to realize, I'm experiencing the Father's love. And it's, it's, it's valid experience built upon good theology. Now, Paul was a, the great theologian. And it wasn't enough for him just to say, hey, the Father loves you. He said, I, I need to describe it with a little more precise language, what this experience looks like. And so in his famous verses in Romans chapter 8, he sort of describes in what I would call a technical way the experience of the Father's love. And this point is what I would call the placement by the spirit of adoption. Basically, the Holy Spirit wants to make our adoption real. In order to do that, he has to place us in the presence of who? Our Father. He has to make, the Spirit wants to make real to us what happened to Jesus at his baptism, that we would experience it through adoption. And so Paul writes about it, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. And the, the word, huyothesia, means the placement of a son. And at that time in that culture, it meant the placement of a son in the presence of their father. And we can say that this word adoption means the spirit comes, and when the spirit comes, the Spirit places sons and daughters in the presence of the Father. And by him, by the working of this Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. When the Spirit puts us in the presence of our Father, we cry out, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did. These are the same words that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. We cry out when we're touched by the Father's love. We cry out. I mean, our emotions are moved. Our tears are moved. So often for us, it, it's his love touching our pain or emptiness or just the sheer joy of knowing. We cry out. And that's what Paul's talking about. We cry out, Abba, Daddy. All of a sudden, I know you're my dad. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit gives us strong evidence that we are loved by God our Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that the evidence that Jesus got at his baptism, that he was loved by his Father, 
is the same evidence that the Spirit brings us. The Spirit comes, puts us in the presence of our Father, and comes and touches us, and in one way or another brings us the message of the Father's love. And it, it moves our emotions. And all of a sudden we know God is our Abba Father. Well, the final point is where all of this heads our own personal experience. I believe the Bible tells us that what Jesus experienced, we can experience. Now, it may not be exactly the same, but in many ways, it's, it's the same love coming on us in our humanity as his sons and daughters. The experience of the Father's love is comprised of the touch of his love through the Spirit and the hearing of his words of love in such a way that we are moved to cry out, Abba, Father. That's what it is to experience the Father's love. Somehow we feel the touching of the presence. Somehow words come, and they can come in so many different ways that begin to speak to us and say, I love you. And the result is that it begins to move us at our emotional level. And we begin to say, as Paul, we cry out just in the, the beauty of that. Abba, Father. The experience can vary in intensity and is often a process. You know, every morning when I have a devotion, it's not like the heavens open up and the Spirit comes, melts my heart, and God says, I love you. I've only had two or three experiences like that in 17 years, big ones and very intense. But I've had lots of little ones. And then I have, you know, times when I don't have any experience, but I just know it's true now. So it varies in intensity. And often it's a process of coming into more of the Father's love. And see, we're all in process in this room. God is writing his story of love in all of us. We're, we're just different kinds of people at different places. But he, the Bible tells us that he loves us all the same. Like, he loves all of us the way he loved his son. That all of us who put our faith in Jesus lift our hands up to the Spirit. That the, the Bible tells us that the Spirit will come and bring the Father's love to us. That phileo love will come and give us some evidence. Come and move our emotions to some degree. And so that's what we want to respond to. All of this wonderful promise of love coming to us and all this wonderful presence of love that's coming to us. And I like sort of the response of Charles Spurgeon. And here's his response to sort of the things I've been talking about. If in my Father's love I share a filial part, in other words, if, if any of this is true, if I share a part in this Father's love, then here's what his prayer is. Send down thy spirit like a dove. He's referring specifically to the baptism. Send down thy spirit like a dove to rest upon my heart. That's my prayer. I think that's our prayer. If in my Father's love I share a filial part, 
then send down thy spirit like a dove to rest on my heart.